it's it's funny when he, when President Obama was first elected during his transition, he suggested to me that I come and work in the White House, and I kind of teasingly said, you know, since I've known you, I've kind of been the boss of you two, <laughs> and now you're asking me to come and work for you. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but I will be the president of the United States of America, <laughs> and so doesn't that count for something? <laughs> I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So please welcome Valerie Jarrett to the couch. Valerie started her career as a corporate lawyer, but in the late 80s, she started working in the Chicago mayor's office. While she was there, Valerie hired a young Michelle Robinson and became fast friends with Michelle and her then fiance, a guy named Barack Obama. So we know how that story goes. Flash forward to now. You know Valerie as the longest serving senior advisor to the president. Plus, she's got a new book about how she found her voice and used it in the White House and beyond, something that I think we are all struggling with. And the most important bullet point on Valerie's resume, she was a guest on the Skims' very first Facebook Live. I'm sure she is so proud of that. I am. Uh, We (laughs) we were very thankful for her being game. And uh, Valerie, we are so excited about this book. It's, It's amazing. We loved it. Thank you so much for coming back and welcome to the couch. I am delighted to be here. I'm so proud of you just looking at how much you have grown since that first Facebook Live. Oh my gosh, we rewatched it last week. It was really embarrassing for us. Like you were great, and wow, we we've come a long way. You have come a <laughs> yes. long way, and that's the whole point. Let's leave it at that. So, let's start with something easy. Skim your resume for us. Ah, lawyer, business person, public servant. Okay, that, that was, was a very good skim. What is not on your resume? Ah, the most important job of all, and that's mom. Okay, so the biggest bullet on your resume, as you said, is the longest-serving senior advisor to the president in history. Your whole job was to use your voice, but you just wrote a book about how you didn't always have a voice that you knew how to use. And I want to talk about how you found it. You wrote a lot about, um, you know, your family's story and that you were born in Iran, um, moved back to the U.S. when you were just a little girl and were really shy. You spoke multiple languages. I want to talk about, you know, what you were like as a, as a girl into becoming a young woman. And then I want to go into um, how you ended up getting a job at the Chicago mayor's office and doing a total career change. I was painfully shy. I never spoke up in class. I think part of it is I'd have this kind of idyllic childhood living on a hospital compound in Iran with uh, physicians, families from all over the world. And we, as you said, we were speaking multiple languages. And my mem- all my memories of Iran back then were perfect, uh, in stark contrast to the relationship the United States has with Iran today. And I just felt free and carefree, and everybody was loving and accepting. And when I came back to the United States, for my parents, it was returning home. But for me, it was going a long way away from anything I was familiar with. And it was in the 60s and the height of the civil rights movement, but also a great deal of unrest in Chicago. And I think I just felt out of place. And I was this kid that was born in a country no one had ever heard of. And I had a British accent because we lived in Iran, in uh, London for a year. And I was a couple years ahead of myself in school. And I just 
I don't know, I just kind of shut down and withdrew and I didn't like to talk about where I was from and I just wanted to be like all the other kids. And I think that contributed to my shyness. And I was an only child as well, but my mom had a big extended family that lived in Chicago and thank goodness for them, I think they saved me. Uh, but it took me a long time to find my voice well into adulthood. Uh, it took me even longer to overcome my shyness, but part of how I did it I think is learning how to advocate for other people. And I was at a big corporate law firm, bored to tears, <laughs> feeling very unfulfilled and uh, miserable. And I was also in a very bad marriage and a, I had just become a mom. And a good friend of mine said, oh, you're so miserable. Why don't you do something that will make you feel a part of something bigger than yourself? And Harold Washington had just been reelected to his second term as mayor of Chicago, first black mayor of Chicago. And I knocked on doors in his campaign, so I was a huge fan of his. And so he said, why don't you go and work there. And, you know, I was the first lawyer of my family. Everybody was so proud of me that I was at this fancy law firm. And it was the first time I actually listened to the most important voice. And that's the quiet one inside of all of us. And it said, try public service. And I took this leap of faith and I swerved outside of my, you know, kind of linear path that I was on. And it was a zigzag, but to even some people, it looked like a step down. I took a salary cut and moved from a fancy office to a cubicle, uh, but I felt like I was where I belong. One of the parts in the book, um, which really resonated for both of us, was um, when you talk about making a list. And yes. you said, you know, you're very type A. We are both very type A. We tend to hire type A people. Uh, and it's a good thing and also can be a, a negative. And you talked about both of those in the book. And when you talked about kind of being a box checker, you know, yes. you you went to the good school, then you went to the good grad school, then you got the good job, then you got married, then you had the kid. Like you did all these things in the right order and you self-admittedly were miserable. Yes. How did you kind of come to terms with the fact that you were breaking your own type A-ness? It was very hard for me because I, as I said, well, when the marriage didn't work, I felt like, oh my gosh, everything I've really worked hard at, I've been successful. And I could not will that marriage to work. In fact, the harder I worked, probably the worse it got. And I felt like a failure. And it was a really demoralizing period of my life. And at the same time as I was feeling like a failure in my personal life, I was miserable in my job. And so I did a lot of just staring out the window, crying in my office. And I just thought, you know what? I was actually not meant to be this unhappy. And the only person who can do something about it is me. And so I just kind of shocked myself into like, let's figure out what to do next. And it was terrifying. And I um, I felt like, you know, will I ever be really good at anything? And I, I was also trying to be superhuman at that point, too. You know, I was going to be like the perfect earth mother and pretend <laughs> like nothing was happening. When I was pregnant, even before I had my daughter, I was like, oh, I've gained 90 pounds, but there's nothing going on down here. <laughs> um, and I just felt that the men with whom I worked wouldn't take me seriously if they thought that I was a devoted mom. And so I pretended a lot. And I think a lot of young people do, young women in particular, pretend to themselves even. And I thought, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me that this is so hard? And part of it is I was making it harder myself. And part of it is our society wasn't structured to support working families, which is part of the work that I did in the White House is to try to change that paradigm. Um, so when I think back on those days, I think, it took a lot of courage to go off path and to swerve, but that's where the adventure began. What do you say to young people now who come to you and say, 
you know, they've been on this path and they're considering a career in public service or government um, because it is a big decision that yes. has these trade-offs and it's worked out well for you. But I'm thinking about my friends who are probably listening to this unhappy in their corporate lawyer jobs that they went to school, got the degree, like did it all right and are unhappy. Um, but the, the point is, they're great credentials. I don't regret having gone to law school. I don't regret having had the best education money could buy or even going and practicing at a big corporate law firm because I developed a skill set that was actually helpful to me when I went into public service. And so I think the attitude shouldn't be like you have this 10-year plan and you're going to stick to it. I think it's to look for opportunities where they fall. And if you take a swerve the way I did, let's say it hadn't worked out. Well, it's the worst thing that would happen. I would have been miserable. And then I could always gone back to the law firm or gone on and done something else. Did you have that optimism then? Like you say, you say it now and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it totally makes sense. But I mean, we all know what it's like to be in the moment where, you're, where everything feels bigger than it really is. And, you know, the distance helps. Have you always been an optimistic person? Yes, by nature. I'm quite optimistic. I, my, my dad was that way. He, we always assume everything's going to work out. My mother assumes everything's going to go wrong. And so she plans for the worst. And But then she says, but if it does happen, you'll be fine. And I think the you'll be fine made me able to be optimistic because, okay, so if you stumble and fall, so what? Um, so yes, I've always assumed things would work out. Uh, but that didn't mean I wasn't scared. And it didn't mean that I wasn't kind of, you know, wondering, well, what will I do if they don't? But I kind of I kind of thought, well, let's try this. And I'm so miserable. It helped to be very miserable. <laughs> it's always good to be very miserable because then true. that motivates you. If I yeah. had, what if I just thought it was mediocre? I might have stayed. Yeah. That would have been dreadful. So part of my message to your young friends is don't be satisfied with mediocrity. Mm. That the world should have more for you in store. And that doesn't mean every single day of your job is totally satisfying. I'm sure you guys have days you're frustrated as well. But on balance, you should feel it like it's meaningful. There was a great story that you told about negotiating a raise at City Hall. Yes. And that your mentor, Lucille, um, taught you how to go ask for a raise. I want yes. you to kind of share that and then tell us what you did after you got your raise. Yes. So I was sitting in a conference room one day, and Lucille was my client. She worked in the mayor's office when I worked in the law department. And out of nowhere, I thought, she said, you should go and ask for a raise. And I said, well, my boss thinks I'm deserving of a raise. She'll give it to me. And she said two things. First of all, that's ridiculous. Your boss isn't thinking of you. And second of all, I want you to be your boss's boss, so you actually should go to the head of the department, not your boss. Well, I just, that's preposterous. I would never in my wildest dreams have thought that. She nagged me, nagged me, nagged me, nagged me, until finally I thought, well, let me just get this over with because I can't, I'm beginning to disappoint her and I don't want to disappoint her. So let me just have him say no and then I can go back mm -hmm. to my life. And he said yes. And, I and thought, this was your boss's boss. My boss's boss, yes. My boss's boss's boss, actually, was the head of the department. I went to him and I said, look, I practiced law for six years in the corporate world. I have the skill set. My boss doesn't. I think I should, I've been working for two years. I think I should have a promotion. Now, what I found out three decades later, and it's not in the book because I found it out after I finished the book, I called Lucille to tell her she was in the book. And so I said, you know, I'm thinking, Lucille, did you ever say anything to the head of the department? Because he didn't seem that surprised when I walked in his office. And she chuckled and she said, I might have. <laughs> so what a favor that was. Because yeah, not only yeah. did she advocate for me, which 
is yeah. more than just mentorship. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. But she also made me ask for myself. And after I did ask, then I went to one of my colleagues with whom I worked, and I said, you should go and ask for a raise too. And you know what she said? Oh, no, when he thinks I should get the raise, he'll give it to me. And I was like, no, nonsense. You have to go and you have to advocate. And I think oftentimes women are the last to ask for the race, where I've never met a man who on day one didn't think he was deserving and not shy well, about it asking. It was so true. Is that I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, like that's who we both were before we started the scam. Mm-hmm. I was just, I was like, they'll come to me with the opportunity. They'll come to me when it's time to make more money. They'll, like this is just how the world works. And Wrong. <laughs> that was so stupid. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> also, we talk about this idea a lot of like when you get something, then you feel not deserving or like guilty in a yes. way when you say and that is such a weird emotion isn't it yeah it's mm-hmm. like yeah it's like how did i how did this great thing happen to me well how about because yeah. you work really hard and you right. earned it yeah and we don't tend to think of it that way and so i'd like to save a lot of the, your younger listeners some time and anguish and just know yes you do deserve it Okay, let's take a quick break. If you like this podcast once a week, we want to talk to you about getting more of us in your ears every weekday because drum roll, please. That was our drum roll. Now you can meet our new daily podcast, Skim This. Every Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern, Skim This breaks down the biggest news stories of the day and gives you the context on why they actually matter. Big differentiator, whether that's Brexit, the opioid crisis, or the race to build 5G. Skim This will connect the dots to provide clarity through all of the chaos and tell you what those stories could mean for you. Search Skim This wherever you're listening to this podcast and hit subscribe so you don't miss it. That's Skim This, wherever you like to listen. All right, now let's get back to the show. So you found your voice. You've used it powerfully over the course of your career. Uh, The biggest one, obviously, advising the president of the United States. So let's talk about how you got there. Starting with the Obamas, you came across and hired a young Michelle Obama. What was it like for you sitting here, seeing this candidate who obviously had a lot of potential, but um, had a different resume? Like, how did you as a boss evaluate someone like that? Well, she kind of reminded me of myself because she'd been at a big Mm -hmm. law firm, too. And uh, the person who sent me her resume said, this person has no interest in being in a big corporate law firm. So that caught my attention Mm -hmm. right away. And when she walked in, I remember her so vividly being tall and simply but elegantly dressed with barely any makeup, hair pulled back. And she saw her resume on my desk and she never said a thing that was in it. And I was struck by that. And she Mm -hmm. instead told me her story. And we now know it's kind of the quintessential American story. Mm -hmm. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, working class family, parents who didn't go to college but believed in education and believed in a responsibility to those who much is given, much is expected, and instill that in both Michelle and her brother Craig. And she also talked to me about loss. Her father and her best friend had died within the year. And she said something about those two deaths in tandem made her think that there must be more for her in life than what she was doing and that she had to make make it the best it could be. And she was wasting time. And I had lost a cousin a few years earlier um, at a very young age. And so I shared that with her. And at the end of this, what was supposed to be a 20-minute interview, hour and some odd later, I offered a job on the spot because I just was so struck by her 
authenticity. I mean, her resume speaks for itself, but behind that was just a real human being who was who was confident, but but at a but at a crossroads too, and was about to consider making this big pivot. And so she told me she'd think about it. And like a few days later, I said, well, where are we? Mm-hmm. And she says, well, my fiance doesn't think it's such a good idea. I said, well, who's That would your... annoy me so yeah. much. I, I actually... said, well, who's your fiance? And what do we care what he thinks, yeah. right? Right. But what's interesting, because a lot of people have said to me, you know, why did she need his approval? And my response, having now known them so long, nearly three decades, is that there wasn't a decision he made in his career mm-hmm. without her right at the table as well. And it was more reflective of the partnership mm-hmm. that they were creating for themselves and that they make big decisions together. Well, actually, I think Aries is an interesting point because obviously they became the Obamas. We all know their story. We know about their partnership and it's an amazing story to follow no matter what your politics are and you, you kind of root for, for their partnership. And with that framing that you just gave, I'm like, oh, that's that's so great. Like, yes, he he was she had she was at the table for him. He was at the table for her. But if someone came to us and we were making an offer and they said, my fiance wants to talk to you, I would be like, um, I'm not hiring your fiance. I'm hiring you. And I'm just curious, like for for those listening who do have a great partnership and are making household decisions together, how do you suggest they frame it so that it it comes off in the right way? Well, you know what the advantage that the Obamas had is, is that, um, look, she wasn't desperate for a job and she could set the terms. And I think oftentimes when we can set the terms, we don't. She figured I really wanted her. Yeah. Uh, and so I think she was banking on that my desire to recruit her would override my hesitancy mm-hmm. to think that mm-hmm. I needed her fiance's yeah. approval. And so it's all negotiating. You know, where are you in a position of strength? And if you are, as she was in a position of strength, then you get to ask for what you want. And so it's hard. It, there's really no, I mean, what she did then and has done throughout her life is she's authentic. And when you are authentic, people kind of accept you where you are or not. And right. you're okay with that. And so, you know, when she comes across very direct and clear with people, um, she hopes that they accept it in the spirit in which it's meant. And if I had said, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to have dinner with your fiance, she would have moved on and still probably been the first lady of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the most fascinating things we uh, see in your relationship with the Obamas, obviously, you were Michelle's boss, mentor, friend to both of them. Um, and then you spent eight years working in a high-stress environment with people that you were friends with. Are you still friends? How do oh my you gosh, yes. how do you survive that and still maintain friendships? I think it actually strengthened our friendship uh, with both of them. Uh, it's it's funny when he, when President Obama was first elected during his transition, he suggested to me that I come and work in the White House, and I kind of teasingly said, you know. Since I've known you, I've kind of been the boss of you two. And now you're asking me to come and work for you. And he said, yeah, but I will be the president of the United States of America. (laughs) And so doesn't that count for something? And we chuckled about it. And and part of how he was easingly compelling is he said, look, I know you. And I know what I want to have in the White House. And I need you there. And just about, um, I mean, when the president of the United States asks you to do something, you tend to do it. And particularly when he's like your younger brother. And she was much more direct. She said, you have to come with us. And <laughs> we we need you and we want you there. And uh, yes, it's it was a the most stressful situation I was ever in. I woke up every single day 
terrified that something would go wrong on our watch and that we wouldn't have the answers to the problem. But I think seeing each other in that stressful situation and you're across the room from somebody and you just can like make a connection Mm -hmm. and you know that that person only wishes you the best. And that's how we felt about each other. And so I think it was comforting to have each other, to be in this together. Like I never, I never for one moment doubted his values, his moral compass, the direction he wanted to take our country. I trusted him completely. So I have a rule for myself that I, can, you know, especially as the skim gets bigger um, and obviously like some of, you know, our our closest friends are some of the most talented people that we know. Um I don't feel comfortable hiring somebody I can't feel comfortable firing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, you, I have to think that way. And um, that's for that reason, I've never let allowed myself to hire someone who I think may be the right person, but I'm like, our friendship means too much to me for me to put that at risk. Did you ever have a conversation with them of like, I mean, people get fired all the time from the White House. We see that currently. Uh, did you ever have an honest conversation with them of like, how do we know if this doesn't work out? Am I going to quit first? Or are you going to fire me? Like, how did you ever talk like that? We didn't. And now in retrospect, we probably should have. I think if he thought it wasn't working out, he would have fired me. Uh, but I don't think any of us, either of us thought it wouldn't work out. I think we thought it would be... Um, that the responsibilities he'd given me were ones that he, where he thought I would thrive. And I think uh, I told him from the beginning, I'll stay here until the very last day if, if you'll have me. And there wasn't a moment I thought about leaving. And I'd like to think there wasn't a moment he thought about firing me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, was there ever a point where you felt like you crossed a line? We go back and forth, obviously, neither one of us is the president of the United States or the first lady, but we have friend time and then we have work time. Yes. Well, we, it's compartmentalizing mm-hmm. and we did that really very well and we worked at it. And so, uh, so for a simple thing is this, like I would never have called him Barack in the Oval Office or anywhere in the West Wing. When we were at work, he was Mr. President. And it was out of just, not just respect for him, but respect for the office and respect for my colleagues because I didn't want to take a latitude with him that they didn't have. I wanted to be um, a part of the team. And if you, if you, that would have been crossing a line, I think. If like, mm-hmm. imagine we're sitting around yeah. a meeting and everybody's going, Mr. President, I go, hey, Brock. No, and, and then the other thing is that when we had our private time, we really didn't talk about work. And and just as most people, when you go home, who wants to talk about work? And it was important to both of us that I be viewed as a part of his team. And so if we were having dinner in the evening, I wasn't relitigating what we talked mm-hmm. about during the day because that would have done a disservice to the team. You tell um, a really special story in the book about being um, with your dad, who was very sick at the time, and your mom, and, and um, you talking about how your family was surprised at all the barriers that you were able to break, even though they told you that you could. They didn't actually believe it. And it struck with me because we always talk about fake it till you make it. And there's a real power in that. And I I love that moment because I'm like, obviously you had amazing parents that instilled confidence and optimism in you. Um, But with an amazing history within your family of people breaking barriers, how do you, as a mentor to so many today, how how do you think about giving the advice your parents gave to you? And have you ever had that kind of fake it till you make it moment? Sure. I mean, yes, mostly. I think we are all, particularly those of who, us who are optimistic, you just like, you're pushing as hard as you can and you're, and you, having had experience as a trailblazer where with effort and hard work, things did fall our way. 
it reinforces in a sense that you just have to keep doing it. I mean, I remember once when we thought, for example, we were not going to get the Affordable Care Act passed. We were, his senior team was really questioning whether we could get it done. And he kind of joked with us. And he's like, we're in the Oval Office and my name is Barack Hussein Obama <laughs> and you're asking me if I'm lucky? And it reminded us that this campaign was the most unlikely thing and mm -hmm. it worked because we all worked so hard at it. And so I think with time and experience and some positive reinforcement, it's easier to fake it till you make it. And then if it doesn't work out, okay, well, you just pick yourself up, you brush yourself off and you try a different path. Summer is almost here. It's so close, or so I keep telling myself. And when you think about summer, you think about relaxing, you think about summer drinks, like a Paloma maybe. This is beautiful. Drink of the summer. I know. Of all these nice things, warm weather, getting outside. And yet, you don't get to escape the realities of your finances because all of those nice things like summer vacations and drinks cost cash money. But you know what the upside of this is? We're going to make it easy for you. Yes. It's called Robinhood, and it's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. There is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, and you can start investing at any level you want. Uh, we are big fans of Robinhood at The Skim, um, and lucky you, Robinhood is giving listeners of Skimmed from the Couch a free stock. Seriously, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Just sign up at skim.robinhood.com. So you've used your voice along the way to advocate for yourself and other women in the workplace. And a lot of our listeners work in male-dominated workplaces. They do not work at the skim. Um, and so these there, there are some stories in the book that we want to talk about that really stuck out to us. Um, and the first one was there was a story from pretty early on when you're working late at a law firm and you were pregnant and you keep getting up. And mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what you told your male coworkers and why you felt that you had yeah, to. Yeah, it was wee hours of the morning and I kept making up excuses for leaving the conference room, you know, go check my voicemail or Xerox machine or vending machine, whatever. And I was going to the bathroom because that's what you do when you're eight plus months pregnant. And I didn't feel comfortable saying that to them. And I think for a lot of reasons in my book, I wanted to be very open about normal parts of being a woman like menopause. I mean, I love that story. Nobody <laughs> talks about menopause. Why not? It's like, why are we For those listeners that haven't read, um, President Obama is was very supportive of Valerie going through menopause and would roll down the windows when he sensed a hot flash. He was extremely <laughs> sensitive to it and joked with me about it too whenever he wanted to. And I, and, and I think that's as it should be. And I think oftentimes, whether it's our period or it's being pregnant or whatever, we're trying to pretend to the men that we're just like them. Well, hey, guess what, everybody? We're not. And why should we be ashamed of who we are? They're certainly not ashamed about you know what they have that's unique mm -hmm. <laughs> by any stretch of yeah. imagination. <laughs> there. Well, we won't go down there. We'll just talk about us. And so, and so, I um, I was heartened one day in the White House when a group of women were and men were sitting around the table before the meeting began. And usually, what happens when it's a, a male-dominated crowd? You talk about sports, and it's, it's it's I think how men get comfortable. They level set, mm -hmm. and they, it's something they have in common. Well, if you aren't into sports, and I am not, then you feel left out. So you start the meeting a step behind, and. And 
at this particular meeting, we were sitting around and three women had come back from maternity leave and we were talking about breast pumping. And I looked at the guys' faces and I was like, we've made it. We have arrived. Now they're <laughs> uncomfortable and they know how it feels. But there is safety in numbers. And so for the women who are working in male-dominated environments, it's harder to raise your voice and talk about being pregnant or breast pumping or, what, or how you feel when you first go back from maternity leave in this horrible separation that every mom, working mom feels, but you don't feel like you can share that. And I think we have to start sharing those stories too. a moment, I I hope I'm not misquoting, but someone was emotional about something and you said, come into my office, cry in here, don't cry out there. Yeah. Do you still think that they shouldn't cry out there? I think it's hard for women still. And it shouldn't be. I think that we always run the risk um, of appearing overly emotional, which is translated into weak. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get to the point where that's not the case. Now, I will say I cried at work a lot about people who I met who either inspired me or who had suffered profound grief. President Obama cried quite openly over gun violence. And I think that's very important. But if you're in a meeting and somebody hurts your feelings, I think you got to just kind of go and pull it together. And if you react in tears, mm-hmm. they, co- they can't hear you. And part of the advice I would give um, women and men in all the work environments I've been is, is that if you want to make the culture better, you have to figure out a way to appeal to people where you can meet them in a way where they don't shut down on you. If you're in a meeting and you burst into tears and you start to scream about something that you're unhappy with, everybody just shuts down. And it's better to like after the meeting go have a good cry, and then go pull the person aside and say, do you realize what you said was like incredibly hurtful? And let me tell you why. And then they're more likely to hear you than if you burst into tears. So you mentioned screaming. I'd like to talk about Rahm Emanuel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he has an elevated voice. (laughs) Yes, so Rahm Emanuel was chief of staff of the president, went on to become the mayor of Chicago. He is known as a screamer. It is a very well-documented, well-known fact. Yes. He, you also talk about that you knew he wasn't super excited about you coming on board to the White House. He told me that. <laughs> he said, <laughs> so don't he come here. direct about it. <laughs> it was quite direct, which I respected. <laughs> what, was it, what is it like working with somebody? And how would you tell our listeners, because I want to take this out of the White House and make it more applicable, how to work with somebody that openly dislikes you or openly is, is not excited to work with you, I should yeah, say. Yeah, I wouldn't say not dislike. Yeah, but, because we were actually friends. And, yeah. he, and he was quite open about it. Um, I think, look, Part of what you do in the workplace is build relationships. And the hope is that people, that you earn their trust and their confidence. And that takes time. It doesn't happen on day one. And so, yes, it was a little off-putting when he said, I think you should go be in the Senate and not come work here. And I said to President Obama, you know, he has real reservations about me coming in. And he said, I know that, but I want you to come. And I get to I get to decide because I'm the president. Um, but I, I did go in aware of the fact that I had to work extra hard to earn his trust. And I think he just simply was concerned about somebody in the White House who had a relationship with the president that was closer than his own as the chief of staff. And he didn't want me to undermine him, and I, and I certainly never did. And so I'd like to think over the course of the time that he was there, he appreciated the fact that I was a team player and that um, and an asset, not a threat. Part of the kind of yelling legacy or screaming legacy that Rahm Emanuel has is um, very much associated with a very macho environment that the Obama White House had early in in the administration. You very famously went to the president and alerted him to the fact that 
there a lot of senior women, especially senior women, were not feeling empowered. Talk us through what that conversation was like. And then for those listening, how can they do that with their own boss when they see that inequality is happening? Well, we had one thing going our way. Tone starts at the top and President Obama, and maybe it's because you know, he was raised by a single mom. His grandmother worked and he saw the problems that she had working in a bank where she trained guys who then leapfrogged over her. He's married to this extraordinarily competent, successful woman, and he's got two daughters. So you kind of had him with hello. And uh, but culture isn't created by only the person at the top. It has to permeate the organization. And so when I noticed that um, the women's voices were shrinking, as I put it in meetings, particularly when he wasn't in the room, because he, he made things better. But when he wasn't there, and I would remind your listeners, we inherited the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. A lot going on. And so it was understandable that tensions would be high. And when I said to him, I don't feel that the women are speaking, are, are being heard, and I'm not sure that they're speaking up as much as you would want them to, he said, that's unacceptable. And so I'm going to have everybody over for dinner, and we're going to deal with this, which is a very effective management strategy. When you got a problem, don't hope that it gets better, particularly if it's a cultural problem. You have to make it better. And the women came over, and he, he went around the room, and he listened to everyone. He said, I want you to tell me what you think the challenges are here and what we can do it to make it better. And at one point, uh, you could feel the women were wondering, like, my gosh, we've been here two and a half hours. Are we using up too much of his time? And he was clearly not in a hurry. And I think that signaled to them how important that meeting was to him. So to answer your question, if you find yourself in the environment where the culture is askew, I think you have to start to to build a case by talking to people who are affected, like the stakeholders around the table. And so talking to all the women and finding out, well, it's not just one woman, it's multiple women who are having this problem, gave me better, more confidence to go to him and say, this isn't a one-off. And his idea of like cutting to the chase and bringing everybody in together also had the added benefit is that we then began having our own dinners with each other. And then when you go into a meeting, and there is just at least one person in that meeting with whom you have broken bread and you know their family and you know their issues and you, you've you developed a relationship with them. It's, you, it's easier to be brave. And so I think part of what my message to women who work in male-dominated environments is, is find somebody in there. And it doesn't have to even be a woman, but just somebody who you have some kinship with. So when you're not sure, you can make eye contact and that gives you a little confidence to say what you got to say. We're going to go to our final segment. Okay which is our favorite. It is a lightning round. Oh, boy. First question. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? A doctor. College major. Psychology. First job. Clinic coordinator and docent. Worst job. Worst job. Oh, what am I talking about? Corporate lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I struggle to get to that? (laughs) Worst professional mistake you've ever made? I think probably... um, when I worked in the Department of Planning and Development, not appreciating early enough how important it was to get my affirmative message out, and I was much too reactive. First call when you get good news. My daughter or my mom. First call when you get bad news. My daughter or my mom. <laughs> when was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Today. <laughs> Ooh, what you do? <laughs> so negotiating with my publisher over an issue. Uh. <laughs> When you are hiring someone, what's your go-to interview question? Tell me about yourself and not what's in your resume. I'm going to throw in a a new one for you. 
everyone gets critical feedback from their manager. What's a piece of critical feedback the president gave you? Oh, turn off cable news. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I would come in agitated about something or other, he'd say, oh, it's time for you to get out of Washington, (laughs) D.C. Go meet some real people. They'll make you, they'll inspire you. (laughs) Stop listening to the cable. And it's really take the long view. And that's something that is hard to do. But he was really good at reminding not just me, but all of us that we were in it for one reason. That's to make the country better. And if you're getting distracted by nonsense, then you're not focusing on the business at hand. How do people know you're stressed? Hopefully they don't. What's your shameless plug? Finding my voice on sale right now at Bookstore Near You. Please, I hope. <laughs> yes. In the hopes that it will make it easier for you to find yours. And then once you do find your voice, do something good with it. Well, Valerie, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you both. Thank you. This Congratulations. Thank you. And to you too. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. Before we go, it is time for this week's Skim Reads. This week, our pick comes from Adam Savage, one of the stars of the show Mythbusters. His new book is called Every Tool's a Hammer, and it's all about the metaphorical things in his toolbox, everything he's learned from his 40-plus years as a creative. Plus, there are guest experiences from people like Guillermo del Toro, the Oscar-winning director, and the chef Tracy Desjardins. Check out the link in the show notes to get your copy. Hint, hint, if you're still looking for a Father's Day gift, this is it. That's it for this episode. See you next week.